Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World Rediscovery. Episode R1, The Broken Stone. The invasion of Egypt had already lasted a year, and the ultimate engagement was only a few short days away. In the stifling summer heat, the detachment of soldiers had been tasked with rebuilding an old Egyptian fort along the Nile. Their commander ordered the demolition of an old section of wall that no longer served a purpose. As the heavy stone slabs collapsed in an eruption of dust, something strange caught his eye. Upon closer inspection, he saw that one slab was covered from top to bottom with writing, carefully laid out in three distinct registers. The uppermost was filled with Egyptian hieroglyphics, the center contained an unfamiliar script, and the lowest held the alphabetic characters of ancient Greek. As fate would have it, the young commander was also a scholar, and instantly had some sense of the object's importance. Without delay, he carried word of his discovery to his superior, who, as fate would also have it, happened to be close by, at the Egyptian port city of Rosetta. The year was 1799 A.D., and what Lieutenant Pierre-Francois Bouchard had just uncovered was nothing less than the key to unlocking several thousand years of Egyptian history. Over the next two decades, the Broken Stone Tablet and its fragmentary text would provide the critical clues allowing a pair of brilliant linguists to decipher Egyptian hieroglyphics. To start this story right, we need to go back around 2,000 years before Bouchard's discovery. In episode 36, I left the always rowdy and rebellious Egyptians in the aftermath of their reconquest by Artaxerxes III. The Persian king had spent the better part of a decade obsessed with restoring Egypt to Persian control, and in 343 BC, he'd finally succeeded in driving the pharaoh Nectanebo II into Nubian exile. Unlike earlier Persian kings, Artaxerxes III was in no mood to treat Egypt with kid gloves. Temples were looted, taxes raised sky high, and resistance quashed with overwhelming force. 
On the surface, the approach worked, as the kingdom remained fairly docile over the next decade, or more accurately, on a slow anti-Persian simmer. Meanwhile, Persia itself remained at a rolling boil. In 338 BC, Artaxerxes III was poisoned by his vizier Bagoas, who then put Artaxerxes' son, Arces, in power, and then, well, poisoned him too when he learned that Arces was planning to kill him. Still looking for a pliant puppet he could rule through, Bagoas next installed a cousin of Arces, who took the throne as Darius III. Before long, Bagoas was getting ready to poison him, too, but Darius was tipped off and forced Bagoas to drink his own poison. What's that about living by the sword? Anyway, poison sellers across the empire flew their flags at half-mast, and Darius III went off to enjoy being king of Persia for a few more years, until he was finally defeated by Alexander the Great at the 333 BC Battle of Issus. Were the Egyptians happy to see Alexander? After the rapacity of Artaxerxes III and his successors, happy would be an understatement. Alexander treated them with respect, lowered their taxes, restored their temples, founded the new city of Alexandria, and even marched all the way out to the Siwa Oasis. It's a long way, trust me, I've been there, to get the blessings of the Oracle of Amun. Then, heading off to other adventures, Alexander left Egypt under the management of a Greek banker named Cleomenes from the Panhellenic port of Nocritus. Not exactly a satrap, but close enough. Cleomenes soon went about jacking taxes back up, extorting money from temple priests, and pretty much doing everything he could to enrich himself at the country's expense. After Alexander died in 323 BC, his friend and general Ptolemy took control of Egypt and eventually had Cleomenes put to death for his abuses. Strangely, all the money Cleomenes had looted somehow ended up in Ptolemy's treasury, but that was probably just an accounting error. So, off things went with the Ptolemaic dynasty, which Ptolemy I kicked off in super-classy fashion, by stealing Alexander's body en route to Macedonia so that he could be buried in Egypt. Like he'd always talked about? Yeah, that's probably it. Anyway, I'm not going to go into the super-shifty cross-alliances and backstabbing that dominated the era of Alexander's successors, although I'd recommend Robin Waterfield's Dividing the Spoils for a good synopsis. Long story short, the Ptolemies were in Egypt for the long haul, striking a practiced balance between their dual roles of Hellenistic kings abroad and pharaonic god-kings at home. Oh, and local poisoners welcomed the return of a bull market, as various royals resorted to the time-tested solution for settling succession disputes and other troublesome family rivalries. By 205 BC, the dynasty was in its decline. After ruling and living large for around 17 years, the latest pharaoh, Ptolemy IV Philopator, finally succumbed to his own excesses. He left behind a sister-slash-wife who was soon poisoned, 
a hugely oversized party boat known as the Tessera Contaris. Seriously, it just may have been the largest human-powered boat ever built. And, oh yeah, a five-year-old heir named Ptolemy V Epiphanes. The next few years saw a major conflict erupt between the young pharaoh's regents, who just happened to be the same couple who'd killed both his parents, and a popular Egyptian general named Lepolemus, who commanded the eastern frontier at Pelusium. Meanwhile, international rivals took advantage of Egypt's weakness and disorder to break off peripheral territories. In short, it was not a great time to be the king. All of which brings us to 196 BC. With his regents recently murdered by an Alexandrian mob, a peace treaty in place with Antiochus III of Syria, and a major revolt in the Nile Delta finally put down, the now all of 14-year-old Ptolemy V Epiphanes craved nothing more than a little dose of stability. The solution arrived at was to stage a big celebration in the ancient capital of Memphis on the ninth anniversary of Ptolemy's coronation, and to also use the occasion to announce some new land grants and tax remissions to the Egyptian priesthood in order to ensure their abiding loyalty. So it was written, and so it was done. Written, that is, on stones of dark gray granodiorite in three distinct registers, reflecting the major languages of the day. The text of the stele names them as the writing of the divine words, the writing of documents, and the writing of the Ionians. We know them today as traditional hieroglyphics, a form of cursive or shorthand hieroglyphics known as demotic, and lastly, ancient Greek. The stele also mentions that the text, known as the Memphis Decree, should be displayed in all Egyptian temples, big, medium, and small, alongside a statue of the king. We don't know how many copies were eventually mass-produced, but we do know that one such stele was erected in the nearby delta city of Sais, where it would end up enshrined for centuries, possibly even longer. It's not until the 15th century AD that the donation stele of Ptolemy V Epiphanes, also known as the Rosetta Stone, once again enters the historical record, and then only indirectly. Egypt at the time was under the rule of the Mamluks. Who were the Mamluks? Okay, well, the Ptolemaic line ended with the death of Cleopatra in 30 BC, and the Romans-slash-Byzantines ruled Egypt, for the most part, through the Islamic conquest of the 7th century AD. This conquest ushered in a series of Muslim dynasties, including the Arabic Fatimids and Kurdish Ayyubids. Mirroring other Islamic societies at the time, the Ayyubids employed a specialized military caste of slave soldiers known as Mamluks, which, I know this is Monday morning quarterbacking, but that just seems like you're asking for trouble. Sure enough, in 1250 AD, the Mamluks finally decided to overthrow their masters and rule the country themselves. The first Mamluk dynasty was the Turkic Bahari dynasty, which was overthrown in 1382 AD by the Circassian Burji dynasty. 
In a dynasty not known for long reigns, Kate Bey, the 18th Bourgie Mamluk Sultan of Egypt, was something of an anomaly. The 28 years of his rule, from 1468 to 1496 AD, were a veritable oasis of stability for Egypt, at least in the context of the times. True, as Sultan, Kate Bey would wage no less than 16 military campaigns, but that wasn't considered nearly as remarkable as his love of travel, his patronage of the arts, or, perhaps most notably, the 230-odd monuments stretching from Alexandria to Aleppo that were raised during his reign. Of course, being a prolific builder, the sultan was always on the lookout for good construction material. If the material happened to come from an old pagan temple, well, so much the better. Sometime during these years, a large chunk of the donation stele was seized by a work crew and used as filler material in the walls of a newly constructed fort built to overlook an outlet of the Nile near the old Arabic port city of Rashid, also known as Rosetta. Since the stone was probably obtained locally, it had likely been removed from Sais and broken long before and the remaining pieces were never found elsewhere in the fort. Either way, for another three centuries, the stone stood in place, as the Ottoman Turks seized Egypt from the Mamluks and oversaw an unhappy period of plague, famine, and general misfortune. In 1798, with his government under revolutionary rule, the ambitious French general Napoleon Bonaparte proposed the idea of seizing Egypt from its weakened Ottoman and Mamluk rulers. If successful, the plan would not only establish a permanent French presence in the Near East, but also undermine the trade and commerce of France's great enemy, England. In particular, their colonial monopoly in India. To his masters in Paris, there was also the additional benefit of getting the popular general out of France for a while. The expedition was soon dispatched, and after a brief detour to capture Malta, arrived safely at the Egyptian port of Alexandria on July 1, 1798. Over the next year, the French won the Battle of the Pyramids, lost the Battle of the Nile to the British fleet under Lord Nelson, put down a major revolt in Cairo, and launched an unsuccessful invasion of Syria. Returning to Egypt, with enemies now bearing down from all sides, Napoleon braced himself for the ultimate battle of the conflict. It was in preparation for this battle that orders were given to repair the old Mamluk fort near Rosetta, named Fort Julian by Napoleon in honor of one of his fallen comrades. And it was here, on July 15, 1799, that Lieutenant Pierre-François Bouchard made his groundbreaking discovery. The reason it was so groundbreaking is that hieroglyphics had been out of use for at least 1,400 years, since all non-Christian temples had been closed in 391 AD on orders of the Roman Emperor Theodosius I, and no one, absolutely no one, had the slightest idea of how to read them anymore. 
By the 18th century AD, most of what was known about ancient Egyptian history came from Manetho, a Greco-Egyptian priest writing in the 3rd century BC. But even his histories were only known indirectly, through fragmentary references in later works. There was also Herodotus, who'd visited Egypt around 450 BC and documented some of its history during his stay. And then there were the biblical stories, like the Hebrew Exodus, Shishak's plunder of Solomon's temple, and Egypt's alliance with Judah against the Assyrians. But really, that was about it. The insanely frustrating part was that an enormous treasure trove of Egyptian history was just sitting there, out in the open, inscribed in temples, obelisks, pylons, and steles, all across the country and even far beyond, just waiting to be read. Efforts at cracking the hieroglyphic code had been made by a number of dedicated scholars in recent years, but the only solid lead to date had come from a Danish coinage expert named Jorgen Zuega, who suggested, correctly, that the oval rings enclosing some groups of characters might signify royal names. That was where things stood at the moment of Bouchard's discovery. Fortunately, in addition to his military responsibilities, Bouchard was also a member of the Commission of the Sciences and Arts, also known as the Savants, a body of around 160 scholars, scientists, and engineers who'd accompanied Napoleon's expedition in order to compile a comprehensive scientific description of Egypt, both ancient and modern. Which is why, as mentioned previously, the young lieutenant had at least some inkling of the importance of his find. Without delay, Bouchard reported his discovery to General Maynou at Rosetta. News of the stone and copies of its three-part inscription were quickly dispatched to Europe, where eager scholars immediately set to work. And here's where the tale bifurcates, between the story of the decipherment of Egyptian hieroglyphics and the story of the Rosetta Stone itself. Let's tackle the stone first. After winning the Battle of Abukir on July 25, 1799, ten days after Bouchard's discovery, Napoleon decided to return to France. He left Egypt and the ongoing war against British and Ottoman forces in the hands of General Kleber, and the Rosetta Stone in the possession of General Minu. Minu eventually succeeded Kleber upon the latter's assassination, and it was under Minu's command that French forces finally surrendered to the British in Alexandria on September 2, 1801. Under the terms of capitulation, France was compelled to turn over all Egyptian antiquities collected during its expedition, including the Rosetta Stone, to the British. Just to make sure they followed through, a British colonel named Turner quickly determined the stone's location, loaded it onto a gun carriage, and hurried it onto a waiting ship bound for England. After being formally presented to King George III, made available to scholars at the Society of Antiquaries in London, and having several casts and rubbings of the inscriptions made, the Rosetta Stone was put on permanent display in the British Museum, where it can still be seen today. Meanwhile, the casts and rubbings were disseminated to institutions of higher learning across Europe and America 
And the painstaking task of deciphering the hieroglyphic text began in earnest. A number of scholars contributed valuable work, but over time the effort became spearheaded by two individuals, one British and one French. The Englishman was Thomas Young, a medical doctor, linguist, and physicist who held the position of foreign secretary to the Royal Society. The Frenchman was Jean-Francois Champollion, 17 years young's junior, but already considered a genius linguist and master of a dozen languages, including Latin, Hebrew, and Greek. The first advances were made by Young. As hinted at earlier, Young was a man of wide-ranging interests and talents, who made important breakthroughs in the fields of anatomy, optics, acoustics, and mechanics. For my fellow engineers out there, he's also the young in Young's Modulus. In 1814, at the age of 41, Young turned his attention to the Rosetta Stone. Using the assumption that the ovals or cartouches enclosed proper names, as proposed earlier by Zwega, Young soon managed to identify and translate the name of Ptolemy in the hieroglyphic portion of the text. He also noticed that the characters in Ptolemy's name resembled the equivalent characters in the Demotic script. This similarity led him to suggest that the two scripts were related, and that both languages probably used a combination of phonetic and symbolic characters. By 1818, Young had translated several dozen hieroglyphic words, mostly proper names, and in 1819, he published an article in the Encyclopedia Britannica documenting his findings. The article would be described by a later French Egyptologist as the let-there-be-light moment of hieroglyphic translation. Ironically, it would also represent the end of the line of Young's efforts. Young would go on to master the Egyptian Demotic script and fully translate the Demotic text of the Rosetta Stone. But, unable to progress further on the hieroglyphic text, the restless polymath soon returned to one of his many competing interests. Which brings us to Jean-Francois Champollion. Only nine years old at the time of the stone's discovery, by 16, Champollion had become so enamored with Egypt that he publicly declared his intention to decipher hieroglyphics and reconstruct the lost history of the pharaohs. Despite his youth, this was no idle boast. Champollion had already earned a reputation as a brilliant linguist, and had recently mastered the Egyptian language of Coptic, hoping that it might aid his efforts. But also, unlike Young, he had a single-minded devotion to his subject. In 1814, in an effort to lay some groundwork, Champollion published Egypt Under the Pharaohs, a two-volume encyclopedia compiling all historical knowledge to date. This work brought him into contact with Young, and began a sporadic correspondence between the two. In 1821, an obelisk acquired by Young's friend, William Banks, completed the long journey from the Egyptian island of Philae to England. Like the Rosetta Stone, the obelisk contained paired hieroglyphic and Greek text, and Young was able to identify the name of Cleopatra 
since the queen's name shared many of the same letters as Ptolemy. Up to this point, Champollion had remained convinced that hieroglyphics were purely symbolic. But this confirmation of Jung's earlier findings, that both phonetic and symbolic characters were present, was apparently the spark needed to fire his efforts. Working feverishly, Champollion soon managed to develop an alphabet of phonetic hieroglyphic characters, which he presented to the French Institute and the world at large in September of 1822. Two years later, he released the full results of his work, entitled Handbook of the Hieroglyphic System of Ancient Egypt. As he summarized his findings, hieroglyphic writing is a complex system, a script at the same time figurative, symbolic, and phonetic, in one and the same text, in one and the same sentence, and, if I may put it, almost in one and the same word. If Jung had provided the let there be light moment, this was the truly defining moment. A little more than two decades after the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, Champollion had finally cracked the hieroglyphic code. So what exactly had he done, and how had he done it? Well, from Young, he'd obtained confirmation of the use of cartouches, the presence of phonetic characters, and, perhaps most importantly, the simple fact that hieroglyphics weren't some unfathomable mystery, but just another language, with its own rules and logic, no matter how complicated they might turn out to be. Added to this was the growing database of available hieroglyphic inscriptions, beyond the Rosetta Stone and even the Philae Obelisk, to include new and important rubbings retrieved from the Temple of Karnak in Thebes. For an example of Champollion's approach, let's use a king's name displayed prominently in the Temple of Karnak, one represented by four characters, an O with a dot in the middle, a kind of upside-down trident, and a pair of characters, each resembling the Greek letter Rho with the end left unclosed. From his earlier phonetic alphabet, the Rho characters were known to represent S's. The O with the dot was believed to represent the sun disk, and the upside-down trident corresponded, in the Greek text, with the word for birth. When trying to figure out how to pronounce these symbolic characters, Champollion turned to Coptic, the Egyptian language that had followed Demotic and was also thought to be related to hieroglyphics. In Coptic, the word for the sun disk was Ra, and the word for bearing a child was Mes. Combined with his knowledge of Manetho's king's lists and his familiarity with languages like Hebrew that typically ignore vowels, Champollion was able to establish the pharaoh's name as Ramesses, or Ramesses. See, it's just that easy. Actually, it's way more complicated, but I thought it would be fun to at least give you the basics. Thutmose came quickly after Ramesses, and then Champollion was really off and running. Coptic had been the additional key that had eluded Young, and allowed Champollion to give phonetic values to the symbolic text. Champollion would eventually go on to produce a handbook on ancient Egyptian grammar, as well as a hieroglyphic dictionary. 
Unfortunately, both these works were destined to be published posthumously. In 1828, the man considered the father of Egyptology first set foot in the country to which he devoted his life's work. One can only imagine how overwhelming it must have been. Not just visiting the temples and monuments he dreamed of his whole life, but being the first person in 1400 years who could actually read the inscriptions covering every pylon, statue, and obelisk. For a man of Champollion's singular devotion, the excitement must have only been matched by the compulsion to see everything, read everything, decipher everything. More than once, his traveling companions would find him semi-conscious in some ancient tomb, exhausted from wrestling with yet another translation. Champollion's health had never been good, and had grown worse with age. It made a poor match with his youthful and energetic spirit. In 1831, at the age of 41, Champollion was elected to the first chair of Egyptology in the world, at the College of France. As great as the honor was, it also came with an imposing set of responsibilities, ones that taxed his failing health to the point that he suffered a fatal stroke later that year. Fortunately, by this time, his legacy was already secure. The four main stages of the Egyptian language, Old Egyptian, Late Egyptian, Demotic, and Coptic, had a combined history of 4,700 years, making it, arguably, the longest-lived language in human history. Before Young and Champollion, only the Coptic script had been known. Now, texts dating back to the very beginning of Egyptian civilization had been made accessible, and gifted to a new generation of scholars who would carry the work forward. It was the first major breakthrough in our knowledge of the ancient world, and it was all due to a collapsed wall, a broken stone, and, in the end, the dedicated efforts of two undeniably brilliant men. Next episode, we'll shift the focus from Egypt and take the first steps toward the rediscovery of the ancient Near East. For centuries, Persia and Mesopotamia had been occasionally visited by a random assortment of isolated European travelers. But the spirit of the Enlightenment and European designs on Ottoman possessions would combine to usher in a new era of state-funded expeditions staffed by men of science. True, many of these ventures would have the goal of proving the historicity of the Bible, but the discoveries they'd make along the way would begin to shed light on civilizations more complex and more ancient than any they could have imagined. All this next time on The Ancient World Rediscovery.